0: I was counting up this last week, um, thinking about, you know, we're getting into the book of Acts and mission journeys and all those things, and I I realized I have been in my lifetime on 31 different mission trips, which sounds like a lot, but when you do youth group ministry, you know, you get at least two a year with middle school and high school, so they add up pretty quickly over the years, but 31 trips, two of those were adult mission trips. The rest of them were uh, me taking students in some capacity, whether it's middle school, high school, or college, and four of those were out of the country. And it begs the question, you know, why do we take, especially youth, but all of us, why do we take youth on mission when they're kids? Why do we take a sixth or seventh grader on a mission trip? Are they really going to be able to affect change in construction? Maybe not, but there's two main reasons why we do youth missions. The first is that we instill some level of, of service commitment in the life of young people. That as they grow up, they grow up serving the Lord. And so that when we have those people become adults, that there is a, a built-in DNA of, of serving the people and the community and the world around us. That ought to be baked into who we are as followers of Christ. Right? Jesus even models that for us with his own disciples. He serves them. He washes their feet. The whole of the Christian life is that we lower ourselves in status for the sake of others and we serve them. But there's another reason that we take kids. And this is why we take them all around the areas, all around the different cities, states, countries. And it's so that we can have experiences of being immersed in different cultures. We want to be growing up in a a sense of diversity. We want to know what it's like. And so for years, I've taken kids to to super rural areas where the, the next Walmart is two hours away and there hasn't been a traffic light for the last hour of driving. And you just hope that a tire doesn't blow because you can't call for help. (laughs) Or to the most urban of scenarios where we see urban poverty and the struggles that come with that. And the type of lives that people lead in those situations. I've taken people to the Caribbean. I've taken people to Guatemala. and, And one of the things that's really neat is when you start to see students immerse themselves in other cultures. They start to see what life is like for the rest of the world and it's not just a matter of we need to see the culture of poverty you know people live on less than a dollar a day no it's it's any kind of cultural change one of my favorite things about mission trips is when you go worship in a different church and you start to see wait the way that we do worship at Stowe pres isn't the way that god described in genesis 1 when he created the world right he made he made seven days and on the eighth day he didn't really rest he gave us the order of service for presbyterian worship No. right? You you have a different way of doing things. There's a quote by Mark Twain uh, in his book, The Innocence Abroad, and it says this, Travel is fatal to prejudice, to bigotry, and to narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating, in one little corner of the earth, all of one's lifetime. When we take our lives and we put them into other cultural contexts and we allow ourselves to see the way things work, it it removes our prejudice, it removes our bigotry, and it also allows us to come home and reflect on how we live our lives and how we do things. I spent four years in an Anglican seminary, and if you know anything about Anglicans, they are hyper-liturgical people. Like, every single word in the service is in a book that they read through responsively. It kind of sounds like drones, just, amen, and then they canticle and chant. And it's it's super strange if you've come from this context here. But I'll tell you, there's some things that I picked up about the reality of how they worship and what they do that would probably serve us well. We get into different cultural contexts, and it allows us to broaden our horizons. One of the biggest challenges as we get into this third movement of Acts is this clash of cultures. We we touched on it a little, little bit when two or three weeks ago, Paul was preaching on the whole idea of Peter and Cornelius and the gathering there with clean and unclean. And there's this idea of are foods supposed to be eaten or not eaten? And God says, you know, I've made it clean so you can eat. And we start to see that as the church in Acts grows, increasingly it's moving beyond the Jewish people. And it's coming in contact with people that are nothing like those Jewish folks. And it's not just a question of of faith and belief. It's a question of cultural practice. So much of the Jewish faith is centered around specific cultural practices. If you look in the Old Testament, those are the ceremonial laws. The things that God ordains for how specifically they are to do sacrifices and feasts and all the like. Right? There's this massive cultural buildup. If you think you have family traditions, you haven't met an Old Testament Jewish family. Everything they do centers around tradition. And so this clash happens. And we're going to look at that today. Just for reference, here's where we're at in the book of Acts. Hey, it worked. Um, We we have three different sections. The first one is Jerusalem, right? We have Acts 1-8 where God says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Today we are starting the kind of last section. Um, and it's a little deceptive. I changed this graphic from last week. Um, it's not, we're about halfway in the chapters of Acts. We're going to wrap it up in a couple of weeks, but we're about halfway in the chapters of Acts where we get to 13 and we now have a shift. They were just with the Jewish people. They were starting to branch out in section two and they were spending some time in gentle territory. Last week we talked about the church in Antioch and its inception it was kind of the first multicultural megachurch in some way. And today, we're going to move into this ends of the earth section, right? And one of the things you'll notice is that the spirit is the one, again, that causes this change, right? The book of Acts is all about how God says, you will do this. The people say, okay, and then they kind of don't do it, and God moves them, right? They don't leave Jerusalem. So God causes persecution, and the death of Stephen makes people scatter all over the region. That's how they get out of Jerusalem. And when they scatter, they start to talk about Jesus, and that's how other churches begin to pop up. This time around, the Holy Spirit actually just comes to them directly and tells them what they are to do. And when you're a church gathered and the Holy Spirit shows up in your room and says, do this, well, you're probably going to do it because it's terrifying, right? so let's, let's read, uh, let's start this up. Barnabas and Paul are selected to go on this missionary journey. In the very beginning of, of, the, of the 13th chapter of Acts, they're sitting in Antioch. They're all worshiping and praising God together. And the Spirit comes and he says, set apart for me both Barnabas and Paul for the work to which I have called them. And that work is to be on mission. And so this is, if you're wondering, how do we get mission trips? This is the very first mission trip that we get in Scripture. And so they go. And so this morning, I want to look at a couple different stops that they make and see how the dynamics of the different, the Jewish and Gentile culture play together. And I think we can learn something from that about how we as a church ought to think and conduct ourselves in the world in which we find ourselves. So let's read together. The first section is this, is Acts 13, 4 through 12. The first place they go. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they had arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. It's a great name, by the way, if you're going to be a false prophet. Just Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus and a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So Sergius is the proconsul of this place, and he's hearing about this, these two guys preaching the gospel, and he wants to hear more. so he summons them. Verse eight. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, same guy as Bargesus, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. be terrifying to have Paul call you that. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop at making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So they come to this guy. He wants to hear more. They get in front of him. They share the gospel. everything's going well. And this Bar-Jesus ma- magician starts to stir up trouble. He says, wait a minute. I don't buy anything that you're saying. And proconsul, you shouldn't either. Why would he do this? It's pretty simple. He is a man of powerful standing. This guy has had the ear and sat at the right hand of this proconsul for a very long time. The message of the gospel contradicts everything that he has said. If Sergius believes Paul and Barnabas' stories, the gospel story, if he gets on board, it jeopardizes this guy's powerful place. His position is at risk. And so he does what any sane, sinful man would do. He starts to belittle the gospel in order to hold on to his holy huddle of power. That's what he wants. Now, Paul won't have any of that, (laughs) so he strikes him blind. It'd be cool if we had that power, if we could just, (laughs) whenever false teachers came, we could just listen, just be quiet be fantastic, right? But he strikes him blind, and so Sergius believes, and many, many people around that area come to know the Lord, and that's and the first, one of the first places where they go on their missionary journey, where a church gets established, as we'll find out later, as they go all the way back around full circle. So that's the first thing. He didn't want to give up his power. He didn't want to give up his status, and so he profaned the gospel of God in order to hold on to what he thought was his to hold on to. So they leave there, and then they go to Antioch. Now, don't confuse the two. There is Syrian Antioch, the megachurch we talked about last week, and then there is Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, which is kind of in modern-day Turkey. Most of the rest of this first missionary journey takes place in what today would be Turkey on a map. And so they keep going, and here's what happens. Paul comes into this place and starts to proclaim the gospel. And, and what we have is about verse, verse 16, 13, verse 16, all the way through 42, is this profound unpacking of the gospel message. It's this long-winded explanation of the gospel. And one of the things we find is that throughout the book of Acts, this happens all the time. When people say, Tell me the gospel, Today we think about, well, Jesus died for you on the cross so that you could have eternal life. And if you pray the sinner's prayer and you forgive us and you believe in your heart then that Christ is Lord, then you can be saved. That took me, what, 10 seconds? Paul doesn't do that. Paul goes through like a super long recounting of every single thing. And he shows them how in the Old Testament, starting from Abraham and through Moses and through David, through the lineage, we get to Jesus. And all the things that God has done amongst the Jewish people have led to this crescendo of the risen Christ. I think it's important for us to really start to read those passages and unpack what the gospel truly is. And so my homework for you is that you would go home and read all of Acts chapter 13. Because if we did it today, we would be here for two hours. So here's what happens, though. He unpacks this whole gospel, and starting in verse 42, we get the response of the people. So the Jewish people hear the gospel there, and this is what they say. As they went out, Paul and Barnabas, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The people ate up every word of what Paul preached. And many of them convert, and many of them come to know Jesus Many of them abandon the past of their faith, and they move in the direction that Paul and Barnabas are suggesting, to the point where the people he's preaching to are begging him, "You have to come back and do it again next week." Sally wasn't here today. We need her to come in here. Peter wasn't here today. We need him to come in here. Please stay a week and preach again. And so they do. Here's what happens. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Antioch was one of the hub cities of that area, so it was a pretty large city. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, Behold, we are now turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice in glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And it drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Paul proclaims the gospel. The Jews could not be more happy. They're all on board, they're super excited. They ask him back next week, they come back next week, preach again. The whole city shows up. Imagine if I somehow gave the sermon of a lifetime, which is not very likely, unless the Lord intervenes, right? And people went, we need to invite all of our neighbors next week. Can you preach the same exact sermon again? And I went, okay. And then next week, people showed up, and we had like 2,000 people in this church building. We had to have people outside with loudspeakers so that they could hear. Would we not be pretty excited about that level of church growth? Right? Right? We would be so jazzed, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. Like it it, would freak us out. That's exactly what happens. But what happens? The Jews do not respond with joy. Instead, they get jealous. Why? Because all the people that showed up the next week, they weren't like the Jews. They were dressed differently. They had different customs. Maybe they were talking when they were supposed to be quiet. Um, they didn't behave the way in worship maybe that everybody else should behave or had behaved and all of a sudden man the church looks a lot different than it did last week I'm not sure if we like that I liked it better when it was just us and our way of doing things there's more of them than there are of us is this going to change the whole is this not going to be like our church the way it was anymore is it going to be different now I don't know. I think it better be if they just went home. And so they stir up trouble and division. And they even start to go after Paul and Barnabas. And then it tells us that Paul and Barnabas left the city and they shook the dust off. There was this custom when when the Jews would enter the Holy Land that before they entered, they would shake the dust off their feet before they entered, so that they wouldn't carry any uncleanliness to to God's holy place. And so by Paul and Barnabas shaking off the dust as they leave, what they're essentially saying is, we're shaking off any of whatever that just was. Paul and Barnabas are condemning them in the harshest of terms. That's why it says they shook off the dust at them. It was a clear statement of, this isn't what we're about. We're excited that that many people want to come and know and hear of the Lord. And if they're a little different than us, well, that's great. So long as they are willing to obey the gospel of Christ, that's all that matters. I don't care how they dress or how they talk or like, it's fine. Just come. And if you're going to stand in the way of that, well, then bye. And they leave. And this is a passage that continues to repeat as they keep going to other places This is the next place. They go to a place called Iconium. And when they get there, the same kind of pattern happens. The Jews there start to incite division. They start to say things about Paul and Barnabas that aren't true to the people in town. And they stir up trouble. And so then they leave that place. And they go to a place called Lystra. And it gets worse there. Not only do the people there stir up trouble. But all of the people from Antioch and Iconium, the Jews follow them to that city just to keep getting down on them. Like, wait, they're going to preach there too? No, 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 it's not enough that we want our holy huddle. We need to go make sure we protect their holy huddle too. And so they follow them to the point where Paul ends up stoned and left for dead outside of the city of Lystra just for proclaiming the gospel truth because there is a jealousy raging amongst the Jewish people because the culture's clashed and they can't take it. And Paul and Barnabas will have none of it. What do they do? He picks himself up, half dead, heals a little bit, and he then goes through all the cities we just mentioned in reverse. And He comes back to the people that he's preached to. First he goes to Lystra, then Iconium, then Antioch. He kind of does the whole gamut. And each and every place he goes to, he preaches again, and he encourages and strengthens those who did believe. And then he appoints elders of them so that they could be their own church and that they could grow and he could thrive. And if we keep reading through the letters of the New Testament, eventually we find out that these churches continue to grow and spread. We learn something about missions in this, right? We go and we proclaim the word, and when people come to believe, we keep checking back. We build relationships. We empower them to lead themselves and to grow as a church. We do the same things with Christians we know, with people that we speak to, that we share the gospel with when they come to know Christ. Thank the Lord, and then we keep investing in that person over and over again to make sure they're growing, getting to know Him more and more. And finally, when they return back, they do the thing that we should do when we go on missions. They go back to their home, Antioch, and they share all the things that God has done with the people, and the people rejoice. It's this homecoming celebration. Hey, how was your trip? Thousands of people know Jesus now. In this city and in this city. And we went here and those guys were a little crazy. But there were some good eggs there. And they had the church now. And hopefully it won't die at the hand of the crazies. Because we're going to have to go back and check in again. And guess what they do? The pattern of the missionary journeys is that as Paul and Barnabas and then later others start to proclaim the word. It's the Jewish people. It's the established of the faith that get in the way at every turn. This gets so bad that as we get to the chapter 15 in the book of Acts, we have this thing called the Jerusalem Council. People were, the Jews were starting to say, all right, if we're going to have these Gentiles here, I don't want them, but if they have to come, well, then they have to behave like us. They have to follow the laws of Moses. And, you know, circumcision was a debate that that came around too. And all these things started to be added on. So the people that were Jews said, you can come be a part of our church, but you have to walk like us, talk like us, live like us, act like us, speak like us. Everything has to be kind of our way or the highway. If you want to be a part of this, right? If you're going to live in America, you better speak American. Because American is a language, right? (laughs) We didn't get that language from across the pond thousands of miles away. That's totally our language. Right? <laughs> that's, that's what happens. And so it gets so bad that we have this council that representatives are sent to. And Paul and Barnabas are among them. They're all sent to Jerusalem to meet with the elders and the apostles. And they're having this debate about the Gentile people. And they're saying, Who, what requirements should we have? Is there any validity to this idea that they have to become exactly like us to be a part of Christ's church? And I want to read you a little bit of what what happens at that. We're not going to go through the whole thing because, again, it would take too long. But I want to read you just a little section, starting in 15, verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring back to when he, you know, he's, he's with, uh, with Cornelius and all those guys. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And then 9 and 10 are the key. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And then later we have James get up and he recounts, listen, we have two reasons why they shouldn't have to act like us, right? Number one, we've seen the experience of Paul and Barnabas and Peter and many others talking to the Gentiles. They have the Holy Spirit. We've seen God at work even though they're not the same as us, and they're not obeying our customs and laws. God is still moving in their midst. So we see God work. That's hint number one. And hint number two is that the word itself tells them that they should be able to include the Gentiles. James is is quoting here, and if you read that verse, he's quoting from Amos 9. There's, There's scripture that attests to the fact that God in the latter days will include the Gentile people as part of his people, and that it's by faith alone that they will be part of the church of God. That's it. And so the decision is made. The Gentiles don't have to walk like us, talk like us, live like us, think like us. There's only three things that they make as a requirement. One of them relates to um, the presence of like, animal blood. The other one is a certain kind of list of forbidden foods, like food sacrificed to idols, other things. And the third is sexual immorality. Why would they make those three things prevalent? If the Gentiles don't have to act like the Jews, why do they still have to do those three rules? Well, simple. Sexual immorality is a universal thing. God calls us to purity. And so that's, that's not a Jewish custom. That's a God custom. Um, that's why when people say, well, the sexual laws were in the Old Testament, but not in the New. Guess what? Paul says, nope. James says, nope. The apostles all together unanimously voted, nope. Sexual purity... As God ordains it, it's part of the New Testament as well. We don't get to change our minds because Jesus came. But the other two relate to eating with the brothers of the Jewish faith. If I have a friend over to my house, I love beer, by the way. If you learn nothing else in my sermon today, Vince loves beer. If I have a friend over to my house that I know is a struggling alcoholic, do you think I'm going to open a beer in front of them? No. Do I think it's sinful to consume a beer? No. No. But I'm going to honor the struggle of that brother. Breaking bread and sharing meals was one of the staples of the Christian faith of this time. This is what they did day in and day out. Remember Acts 2? Every day they gathered together sharing meals and praising God together. For the Gentiles to break bread with the Jews and to eat the things the Jews thought were offensive would just be a struggle. And so they they say... You know, one of the things we could require is that if they're going to be a part of the fellowship, that while they're here, maybe they just don't do those things so that you know, it doesn't cause our Jewish friends to, to struggle uh, in the midst of sharing a meal together. That's the only reason those three things are kept. It's just to create some level of harmony. It's practical. It's not because God says you can't eat those foods anymore. It's just practical. It's the same vein that if someone came to my house, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pull out alcohol if they were struggling with that. When I need it? Oh, no. If I did, that'd be a problem. Right. What's our takeaway here? We don't require Jewish customs. Why do we need to talk about these passages? Why are we worried about what the Jews and the Gentiles were feuding about decades or centuries or millennia ago? Why does that matter? We don't sacrifice idols. We're not requiring those cleanliness laws when people come to be a part of our church. It would be wacky if we did. Because we have our own unspoken rules and requirements. We have the things that we expect of people outside of our walls that don't know him and aren't like us. If they're going to come in here looking all disheveled, well, we're going to look at them weird. Maybe they come in acting a little different. Maybe they come in as part of a vastly different culture. Maybe uh, maybe this church doubles in size over the next year, but the people who come have a vastly different understanding of what worship on a Sunday morning looks like, and so we change some things around here, and we all get super offended at it because this is how we like to do things. I mean, we're Presbyterians after all, right? How many Presbyterians does it take to change a light bulb? Change? We don't change that light bulb's been out. That's just how it is now. Right? <laughs> you laugh, but thankfully we're not like that quite like that here. We have our things, but we would change a light bulb. I know some churches who would be like, "It's ordained by the Lord." That's up. That's and I just saw that that light bulb is out, so <laughs> as we talk. We have our things. We, in many ways are like Bar Jesus. We have our, our, our power and authority structures. Maybe you've, you'll say, "I've been part of this church since the day it was founded." And this is how it's always been. And I don't want it to change. We do this event every year. What do you mean we're not going to do it anymore? That room has always been this. What do you mean it's going to be a different thing now? What do you mean we're going to do four songs instead of three songs this week? Jesus told us we can't do that. What do you mean we're going to maybe we have an international population and we do a song in Spanish I can't understand what they're saying we have all these things that we want to hold on to that we want to have in power and just like bar Jesus who wants to hold on to his authority structure maybe, some, maybe you're gifted at something in this church and you've been volunteering in a certain area for years and years and someone might come along and it's way better at it than you are how that's who I am. I'm the person who does that thing. If someone else does that thing, well, who am I? Well, you're a brother or sister in Christ who's part of the worshiping community of God and a fellowship of Still Presbyterian Church. It doesn't matter what you do, right? But we don't want to give up of our identities. Just like the people in Pisidian Antioch, we don't want things to change. And here's the reality The Lord tells us that outside of these walls, there are a people that in many ways aren't like us. They don't think like us. They don't talk like us. They don't act like us. They have a very different understanding of the world. And I can tell you right now, the way that church happens, they're not going to want to come and be part of it. We must be willing to adapt. We must be willing to lay down the things that we desire Now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we cater to the world when it comes to church. There are things that God says about how worship is to happen and how we are to live. We don't compromise on the things the word proclaims, but that's not the problem in Acts. The problem is that they don't want to compromise on the things that they have set up. There's stuff we do in church because God commands us to. And there's stuff that we do in church because it's the way we've always done it and it makes us feel happy. And that latter part has got to go. It cannot stay if we're going to continue on. One of my favorite kind of church slogans, you know, I've I've been more part of more mission, vision, value, statement kind of things than I can count But one of my favorite ones was, it's no longer their mission statement now, but it was when I was serving there, Memorial Park Church in Pittsburgh. They have this this phrase that says they are to proclaim the never-changing word to an ever-changing world. And part of the outflowing of that was we will do whatever we must do so long as it lines up with what Scripture commands us, right? So long as it doesn't go against the word of God anything to reach the ever-changing world and the implication is that the world is ever-changing so they constantly would look we're going to adapt to be like this now we find ourselves in a neighborhood that thinks this way here we go people want to gather on this day instead of this day we'll do it we want to shuffle around ministries in the way they're supposed to function we'll do it Whatever we have to do as a church so that more people outside of these walls will come to know him as their Lord and Savior and come to be a part of the worshiping community of God's body, we will do it. If I have to sing songs that are weird, I don't care. If the whole order of the service has to flip upside down, so long as it stays in line with what God prescribes for worship, I'm okay with it. We have to be nimble and willing to change our ways to lay our own desires and needs down so that people might come to know him. Last week we talked about the first place where that really happened, where the Jewish people said, yeah, come on in. And it blew up. You want to know how the church grows? It's when we lay down our own selfish desires, when we actually think of this place as a center for mission from which we go out and gather in the lost. And we proclaim the gospel of Christ and how it changes absolutely everything, and we don't compromise on the message one little bit. But we serve in whatever ways we're able. We love in whatever ways we're able. We invest in the lives of people, and we bring them here, and we make sure that this is a place that welcomes them, where anyone can walk in the door you feel welcomed and challenged by the gospel of Christ that invites us in and says, come in, I will change your heart, I will make you a new creation. The only thing that people outside of these walls should have to conform to is the gospel itself. Just like us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the hard words of the book of Acts. These things are easy to talk about and challenge us with, but hard to carry out. It's difficult to put ourselves aside. Lord, for many of us, church makes up a massive part of our identity. This is the place that we feel comfortable in, where we know everybody. We like the way things are going. And sometimes laying that down can be really hard. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us a measure of your spirit that allows us to move in the directions you call us to. We pray for boldness. We pray that our selfishness would be cast aside, that you would help us do that. Lord, we pray for those people that we know that come to our minds right now that don't know you that need to. That you might move and stir us up to engage with them, to share with them, to invest in them, not as some pet project, but as people that that we know that you have created and that you love. That they would come to see a little bit of you in us. And that if we invite them here, that they might feel welcome. That this is a place equally for them as it is for us. Lord, let our church be known as that above all things. Let us not be so concerned about just reputation and programs and all these things, but let us be known as a church that welcomes the lost under your gospel and under your authority. Be with us this week as we go out into the world. Let us go equipped knowing the truth of the gospel and empowered by your spirit to do your good work. We love you and praise you and all those people said.